anytime during the Christmas season. And for me, it's not an issue of, oh no, what on earth can I find to preach? It's what do I narrow it down to, to preach? Um, so many things we could talk about. I am a little kid when it comes to Christmas, a little bit of a fanatic, you could say. And um, as I think about Christmas and I, as I prepared for this message, actually, I had the outline, I had the PowerPoint, things were getting ready, <clears throat> and it just wasn't working. And I couldn't even sleep at night because it just didn't sit right. And anyway, then all of this has, this message is formulated in the last couple of days. As I've thought about what we could talk about and what are key elements to the Christmas story, and as we gather this morning on actually Christmas morning, who are the key characters? What key events? Of course, it's the Word of God, so every aspect of it is important. We could talk about the shepherds. We are kind of fanatic uh, shepherd fanatics at our house, as I talked about in the children's service. We and we have a lot of shepherds um, around our house with our nativity scene. We could talk about the shepherds' important message there, an important message of salvation, as they were told that a savior had been born in Bethlehem. Of course, an important message with the angels. In fact, as we see angel involvement with the birth of Christ, angel of the Lord uh, appears to Zacharias, appears to Mary, appears to Joseph, appears to the shepherds, and then the whole heavenly host, all the angels of heaven, end up in Bethlehem, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, to worship Jesus. And so as we, we could talk about the angelic heralds, and that's an important part of Christmas, there is the, the wise men, Wonderful, as we've even heard this morning, we see the deity of Christ proclaimed in the message of the wise men as they came to worship um, the king of the Jews that was born in Bethlehem. Of course, we could talk about the star, a miraculous sign in the heavens that Messiah was born, the king of the Jews <coughs> was born. But as I've narrowed it down this week, praying about it and meditating on who are the key figures to Christmas Day. I realized we could have the birth of Messiah without the shepherds. We could have the birth of Messiah even without the star. Um, we have the wise men that fulfilled some Old Testament prop, uh, prophecy. I believe they only fulfilled it partially, um, and we will see that finished off at the end of time as we know it. Um, but there are some key fundamental characters that are extremely important to at least Christmas Day, the day of Christ's birth. So we're going to look at those four this morning, and I'm sure we could argue that there are others, but we're going to look at four that were completely necessary to this day. And so this morning, we're going to look at, just for a few minutes, the four fundamental figures of Christmas Day. Well, who is figure number one that we need? Number one is a willing woman. If you look at Luke chapter one, we find a young woman, a young woman by the name of Mary, a virgin who is espoused to a man whose name is Joseph. 
Mary has never been with a man, and so she knows it is not possible for her to have a child. And she tells the angel this when he tells her that she's going to um, conceive a child. But after this whole discussion with the angel and with Mary, she receives all of this news. He's going to reign upon the um, throne of his father, David, (coughs) all these amazing things. She gets clear instruction about the Holy Ghost. So um, Mary, at least, had no doubts that there was a Holy Ghost. He was involved in all of this. The power of the highest, God the Father, is involved here. Verse 35, that holy thing which shall be born of thee, which is Messiah, God the Son, shall be called the Son of God. Anyway, as we come down to verse 38, we see her response which I believe is extremely important for the whole Christmas story to continue to play out here. And I think an important lesson for us this Christmas morning, verse 38, and Mary said, I will agree to this if you do X, Y, Z. Is that what Mary said? I will do this if you will give me these, um, I'm going to lay out a fleece to make sure this is what you said. And Mary has this bargaining time with God. No, she doesn't do that. In fact, we see great spiritual maturity here. We have a spiritual woman here. What does she say? And Mary said, behold, the handmaid of the Lord. I'm here. I'm your servant. She presents herself to the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. We have a woman who's willing to be used by God. Can you imagine the doubt that she has? Can you imagine, women, the nervousness, the fear, recognizing the ridicule that she is likely to receive, recognizing there may be misunderstanding from her espoused husband? recognizing she is already has already entered into a covenant relationship with Joseph. And yet here she's going to be found with child. Yet she lays all of her reputation, she lays all of her pride at the feet of the Lord and says, be it unto me according to thy word. A key figure in the Christmas story is a woman who was willing to be used by God. So I ask us this morning, it's a very simple message, and point number one is very simple. We have a willing woman. Are you willing to be used by God? Are you fully submitted to him, willing to endure shame, willing to endure reproach, willing to suffer, endure pain, whatever the case, willing to be used by God? a truly submissive woman. I was, as I was thinking about this and meditating on this story and how unpopular the idea of submission is in the 21st century. And I thought, you know, one thing I could counsel a woman who says, I just have a problem with the whole concept of submission. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, well, what fixed Mary's whole problem? She just submitted to God. And I thought if a woman has problems with the idea of submission in the structure of the home, just start submitting to God. Let God deal with that problem. We had friends up in the D.C. area, sweet, sweet um, 
Christian couple up there, they would come down, they were kind of snowbirds, they'd come down and vacation in the south in Louisiana during the winter. And they came to our church a few times and we became good friends with them. Our family went up on vacation one year to DC and we went to their house, spent some time with them. Well, as we were eating with them, um, she shared some of her testimony. She speaks at women's conferences. And, um, but before she began speaking at women's conferences, her pastor preached one Sunday morning about that wives should submit to their own husbands in the home. And she was so infuriated with such a stupid sermon that on her way out, she chewed out her pastor at the door. Let him know he is wrong. And this is, I mean, she just let him have it. Anyway, she said by the time she got off the porch of the church and got home, God dealt with her so severely, she had to call the pastor back and apologize and confess. He was right. She was wrong, even though she didn't like it. And God began to work in her heart. And before long, she is standing herself teaching women about positions and and roles in the home. But she was a woman that God had to teach. I need to, number one, submit to God. And if I learn to submit to God, I can deal with my cultural issues with what God says should be happening in my home. But it's not just for women. Every one of us need to learn the lesson of submission. So we have, number one, we have Mary, a willing woman. But I need the help of a little girl, uh, Nora. Nora, could you help me with something? Would you like to help me? Could you come up here? I have this Christmas package up here, and I need you to help me pull something out of it, okay? So, Leslie, don't tell anybody what's in here, okay? It's going to be a surprise. But can you pull her out? Who is that? Mary. Mary, that's right. Okay, let's close this back. Don't tell anybody. So put Mary real nice right in the middle of the communion table there, and you can go back to your seat. Thank you. Okay, so we have Mary. Number one character here, Mary, a willing woman. Number two, a second person who's extremely important for Christmas Day is an honorable husband. Look at Matthew chapter one. Matthew, <coughs> Matthew chapter one. At verse 18, we find that um, Joseph has found out that his, uh, well, let's just read it. Uh, Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his uh, mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, and I think this is interesting, what does the scripture call her? They are a spouse, they are... Um, already in covenant relationship here. And he says, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, a righteous man, an honorable man. This idea of just, it's it's often used in relationship to the, the law of God, that he's a man that's obedient to the Lord, walks in God's ways, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. So it would be against the character, the nature of Joseph to make a public example of her, to shame her, to embarrass her, where legally he could have. 
Legally, he could have given her a a writing of divorcement. Legally, he could have taken her out and had her stoned. But yet, here he is, an honorable man. And he decides, he's thinking about this, troubled over this, trying to decide what he's going to do, how he's going to deal with this. Verse 20, but while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David. This is one reason why he is a key character, a key figure to this Christmas day. He's a son of David. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, tried to decide what he was going to do about what the Lord had told him. Is that what it says? Now think about this, men. Think about it in all honesty. You're betrothed at that point. Even think of it in modern terms. You're engaged. And all of a sudden, your bride-to-be shows up expecting. What are you going to do about this? There is going to be shame if he goes through with this. There is going to be ridicule. Maybe public, at least there's going to be whispers. But what does Joseph decide? I don't know that I've ever quite thought about this before. I've thought about the fact that Mary was going to have to endure ridicule, yet she was submitted to the Lord. But Joseph was going to have to endure it as well especially culturally as it was at this day, it was going to cause problems for Joseph. But in verse 24, then Joseph being raised from sleep did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not, a patient man, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. We have an obedient man. What do we learn from this husband? We learn the importance of obedience. Are we obedient when the Lord gives us direction? It doesn't matter whether or not other people understand it, but we need to walk in obedience. So number one, we have, number one, a willing woman. Number two, an honorable husband. I need another Helper, is Matthew awake? Matthew Baker, can you come up here? In the position he was, I was not sure. Okay, I need you to pull something out of the box, okay? You ready? Can you pull him out? There you go, thank you. And have him go sit by Mary. They're waiting patiently. (laughs) So we have a, a willing woman. From her, we learn we need to be submitted to the Lord. We have an honorable husband. From him, we learn that we need to be obedient to the Lord. And number three, this is one I had not thought of a lot as being a key figure of that day, of Christmas Day. And number three, we have an enterprising emperor. 
an enterprising emperor. Look at Luke chapter 2 and the idea of him being enterprising we get from history, but the scriptures here, um, well, I should say history lines up with what the scriptures say about him here. And it came to pass, Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and that is just giving us the historical context because Caesar Augustus reigned for quite some time. And this is giving a more specific time in the local politics. And in verse 3, and all went to be taxed, every one, Unto his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David. Now, why is he such an important character? Well, we have an emperor who now has control over the whole region of Israel here, that I believe was in the region of what was called Syria at the time. And here he was in Judea. Well, rather, Joseph is in living in the north, and he's going to have to come down. Why? Because there is an emperor, the first emperor of the Roman Empire. He's considered to be one of the greatest leaders, political leaders in human history. He is a man who is very inventive with things. He actually was the first to take on the name Augustus, which was used by following rulers he went through a number of different names in his lifetime, but he took on the name Caesar Augustus after he had defeated Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. I love the fact he was born on mine and my wife's anniversary, or we got married on his birthday. I don't know which one that was, but Senate actually granted him permission to use the name Augustus. And so we find Caesar Augustus here in the scriptures calling for a tax. There were many things he started. He was the one that started the first official police department in Rome, the first fire department in Rome. He developed a network of roads with an official courier system. He established a number of things, but one of them was the Roman system of taxation. Why is that significant in history? Because it's significant in the Bible. Because this emperor who wants to tax the whole world that he controlled, this taxing seems to be about money. It seems to be about a census, yet it is not. The taxation and his whole system of taxation had really nothing to do with money. He may have thought it did. He may have thought it had to do with his ego. He may have thought it had to do with the economy of his nation. But it all really came down to one thing. God needed Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. Joseph did not live in Bethlehem. And so God raises up this emperor, Caesar Augustus, who's going to have an idea that he thinks is his own. Let's tax the world. Let's make everybody go back to their city of origin. I mean, he thinks this is a great idea. I mean, he is such a smart dude. But he doesn't know that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And the Lord is the one ordering this tax. Why? Because he's going to move a man by the name of Joseph, his wife by the name of Mary, and her unborn child, the Son of God, 
are going to be brought to Bethlehem just in time for Messiah to be born in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled, that out of Bethlehem would arise Messiah. What an amazing thing. And I think an important lesson for us today is that God will use wicked rulers and corrupt nations to accomplish his purposes. So when the news headlines get us too frustrated, we just need to remember a man by the name of Caesar Augustus. And remember, God could use that wicked man. He thought he was doing something for himself, yet he was just a pawn in the hands of God. And at the first coming of Christ, at his first epiphany, we see God using a wicked ruler. And in these last days before his second coming, his second epiphany, you and I can trust that God still holds the heart of kings in his hand. But I need another helper, Brother Creed. Could you come up here? And I need you to come all the way up to the pulpit because this next piece doesn't fit in the box. So if you could come right up here and get that out of the pulpit, there you go. And you can go put it down there by Mary and Joseph on the communion table to help us remember the Roman emperor. Very good. Thank you. So number one, we had, say it with me, a willing woman. Number two, an honorable husband. Number three, an enterprising emperor. And number four, most importantly of all, a sinless Savior. A sinless Savior. Turn over to Galatians chapter 4. And as you do, could Miss June and um, Johanna. Could you come up and help me, please? So come on, June. There we go. Okay, so let's get right here. I need June. Would you take that? And you can put it right there in front of Mary and Joseph, and then you can put the baby in the manger. Thank you. The sinless Savior, the centerpiece of our Christmas celebrations. Galatians chapter 4, a beautiful Christmas passage, gives us the doctrinal message of Christmas. Galatians 4, and let's start reading in verse 4. He's been talking about the fact that we are in bondage under the elements of the world, bondage under sin. We are under the law. The heavy thumb of the law is squashing us. But I love it when something bad's happening in the Bible and then it says, but. Yeah, we're in bondage. We're in bondage. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. The fullness of time. There are so many things that we could consider in human history. Say, Caesar Augustus. He's ruling the Roman Empire. He's going to be part of the idea of one element of the natural side of the fullness of time. You have an emperor who's going to be in control that God is going to use to bring Messiah to the right place, to the right city, to the right village to be born, to be laid in a manger. You have a woman who is willing to be used by God. When else in history did God have the right woman, the right man, the right emperor at the right time? All of these things lining up. A star is going to appear in the heavens. 
The Greek language is the language of the world now. The Old Testament had been translated into Greek and was being spread throughout the Roman world. And now the New Testament is going to be written in the Greek language and it's going to spread through the language of the world. All of these things are in place at the right time. The gospel is going to be able to more quickly spread through this Roman, the, the, the conduit of the Roman empire. This are, these are just part of the ideas of the fullness of time. But what I see most of all, when I see, read these words in the fullness of time, I see the sovereignty of God. Everything had come together the right place, the right time, at the right time, the fullness of time was come. God sent forth his son. We see here in this statement, God sent forth his son. We see the deity of the Messiah. The fullness of time had come. We see the sovereignty of God. God sent forth his son. We see the deity of Christ. The Jews understood for him to be called the son of God was for him to be claiming equality with the father. Then we see the humanity of Christ made of a woman. We see his humanity here, the incarnation that God came down and became flesh. How is he God and man at the same time? I just heard a clip of an old sermon last night. And the preacher said it this way. He said, it is a mystery. You cannot figure it all out by logic. We cannot figure it out by our mind. So he said, take your pride and lay it in the dust and receive it by faith. Fully God, yet fully man. We see his submission. God the Son submitting to what? Made under the law. He was the lawgiver. He's the one that gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. He was the one that gave the law of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He's the one who gave the law, yet he came and he submitted himself to the law which he had given. We see redemption in the next verse. Why did he come? To redeem them that were under the law. Who's that that was under the law? That's all of us. Why? Because whosoever shall keep the whole law yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all in need of redemption. This idea of redemption, he was going to buy back that which had been lost. Where was mankind lost? In the Garden of Eden. When Adam sinned, sin entered into the world and every human being since then, with the exception of Christ, has been born into this sinful race. And yet Christ was born to redeem them that were under the law. You just can't get better than that on Christmas Day. He came to redeem us that we might receive the adoption of sons. I had the privilege of attending an adoption one time. There was a young man, a family in our church were adopting, um, uh, adopting these um, two kids. They were actually older. The young man had just become a teenager, actually. He was being adopted by 
his um, stepdad. And he called me and said, would you attend my adoption? I can call and have one person come with us. And it was really special to go into that, the back of that attorney's office and to be there for the smiles and the tears and the excitement because he had a new name. He had been adopted into a new family. I enjoyed on Wednesday night seeing the picture of Brother and Mrs. Poole with their adoption t-shirts on for the adoption of their grandson. I remember Brother and Mrs. Poole saying, pray for this to happen. And then them texting me, okay, pray it's supposed to happen tomorrow. And then getting that picture later in the day, the excitement of a family when there is an adoption that takes place. Well, Christ came to redeem us, to buy us back to God so that we could receive the adoption of sons, so that we could be adopted into his family. But of course, he continues, verse 6, and because ye are the sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because we've been made sons, we have received the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful promise. But let's look back at one more verse. John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse number 12. Christ came to redeem us. Christ died on the cross to redeem us. He was buried. He rose again the third day. Redemption has been paid for. The adoption has been paid for. But in order for us to receive that adoption, what do we have to do? John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We find this concept of an adoption. We find the concept of the new birth, which are really the same thing here, just different terms explaining what happens. Another word for the same thing is being saved. But how does this happen? We do not find in the pages of Scripture that God forces adoptions on anyone. I want you adopted in my family, so therefore you are adopted. No option, Grace. You're adopted. That's not how God deals with us, is he? Does he, rather? As you read the pages of Scripture, you find that while he paid for redemption, while he made this plan, while the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world in God's mind and in God's heart, yet you and I must receive this gift. We must receive him. We're not just receiving eternal life, we're receiving the person of Jesus Christ himself. And that's this idea of believe here, faith placing our faith completely upon him. And to the person who receives him, to the person who believes in him, we are given the power to become the sons of God. How does this happen? The new birth, adoption. We are adopted into the family of God. So why did Christmas take place? It wasn't just so we had a nice story and every year we can sing about peace on earth, even when war is going on. But it's so that we would have a savior, so that he could redeem us from the curse of the law, so that we could be made the children of God. So an adoption 
could take place. A baby was born in Bethlehem so that we could be adopted into the family of God. And if you're here today and you have never done that, you can receive Jesus Christ. Even this moment, I challenge you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. So who are the four fundamental figures of Christmas Day? Number one, a willing woman. We learn from her that we all need to be submitted to God's will. Number two, an honorable husband. From him, we, need, we learn that we need to be obedient to God's instructions to us. Number three, an enterprising emperor. From him, we see that God will even use wicked rulers to accomplish his purposes. And last, but most importantly, a sinless Savior who came at Christmas to redeem us back to God. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this promise that we who believe in Christ, we who receive him, will receive the adoption of sons. We will be made children of God. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today that does not know you as their Savior, whether it's a child that's just beginning to understand whether it's a person who's been in church their whole lives and living a, a somewhat model of a Christian life, yet they've never had faith in you. Lord, I pray that you would work in hearts now and anyone who doesn't truly know you as Savior, that they would receive you today. I pray that you would help us as believers to be submitted to you, to walk in obedience to you. And in the midst of the situation we find ourselves in the world around us today, help us to trust you, that you are a sovereign God. And you're not surprised, you're not, uh, you're not disturbed, your plans are not messed up by the wicked. But we thank you that you can take the heart of a wicked ruler. And just as you got your son at the right place through this man, Lord, today you can work and we can trust you no matter what the situation is in our world. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to trust you more today. We thank you for this day of Christmas. Thank you for sending us your son and adopting us into your family. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Brother Hugh.